In Temple Emmanuel's weekly Shabbat sermons, Rabbis Wes, Michelle, and Eliza share reflections, wisdom, and teaching to enrich your mind and soul. You can find the video archives and podcast versions on templeemmanuel.com. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. It is just so good to be with you this morning. Uh, beautiful Shabbat morning, April 2nd. Uh, we have a triple header today. It's Hazria, it is Rosh Chodesh, and it is Shabbat HaChodesh, announcing that in a couple of weeks we're going to have Pesach, so it's a very rich day. Um, and Elias and Dan, it's so good to be with you. Um, I'm so excited about this class that we're about to do now because it has two things going for it that are pretty unique. One is this class is going to be powered by what is called in Hebrew a chidush. A chidush, like the word chadesh, is new. Uh, and a chidush is a new idea, um, and when it's used in this context, it, it refers to a new idea in biblical scholarship or a new Torah insight. And that's very rare because Jews have been thinking about the Torah for thousands of years, and a lot of people have been giving their life to the study of Torah. So for somebody in the year 2020 to say something that has never been said before, ever, about a challenging biblical text, and then it's so wise and it's so brilliant and it's so true, and then you can't see it any other way but the way this person said it with their chidush, with their new insight, that is just very rare. I can't remember a chidush that is as brilliant as Jonathan Sachs's that we're going to see. And then what it does is it has the effect of taking a subject that seems very remote from our life, very remote. Uh, Numbers 19, the para aduma, the red heifer. Uh, it's very remote from our life. And with Rabbi Sachs's analysis, it becomes our life. It becomes the essence, the core to our life. It goes from remote, not about us, to entirely about all of us through the power of his brilliant insight. May he rest in peace, but his words of Torah live on. So let us thank God for the gift of learning Torah together, and we'll jump right in. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher kitshanu v'mitzotav v'tzivanu la'asot v'divrei Torah. V'harevna Adonai Eloheinu et divrei Torahcha v'tinu v'fi amcha v'Yisrael v'nihya na'achnu v'tzasa'enu v'tzasa'en amcha v'Yisrael so last Shabbos was Shabbat Para, the Sabbath of the cow, the Sabbath of the red heifer. Um, so I want to just first frame it for everyone at home, and then we'll look at it inside. And then we'll look at it with uh, the eyes of Jewish interpreters before Rabbi Sachs. Um, so this is an obscure concept, which is that if you're in biblical Israel and you are in touch with the dead, let's say your loved one dies at home and you've been in contact with the dead, then you are rendered ritually impure. Because Judaism, so the Torah is so about life, choose life, so against the Egyptian cult of the dead, that if you are even near death, if you touch death, then you're impure for seven days. You have to be purified in order to come back into the camp and in order to be able to go into the holiest precincts, the temple, the tabernacle. And Numbers 19 
provides the way that you are purified, which is you take a red heifer, a perfect red heifer without blemish. You then incinerate it to dust. You throw in there some hyssop, reduced to dust, some scarlet, reduced to dust, a cedar tree, reduced to dust. You take this ashen, dusty thing, you combine it with water, and now you have this red heifer, hyssop, scarlet, cedar tree, ashen, dusty potion. And on day three and on day seven of the seven-day cycle, the person who has been rendered impure is spritzed with this red heifer solution, and then they are rendered pure. And by the way, all the people who are engaged with preparing the potion are rendered impure. That's a separate category. So um, it's been famously enigmatic. What does it mean? And then the second question, which we'll bring up, and I think I'm going to raise the second question now and answer it at the end. If I don't answer it, uh, hold me accountable, which is why the rabbis see fit to take this opaque text and bring it to us right before Pesach. Um, what's the connection between this red heifer and Pesach? So what I want to do, Elias and Dan, is just ask you as humans, um, what do you do with this kind of text? I mean, this is a text you've chanted. This is a text that you've taught your bar and bat mitzvahs. Uh, what do you do as just a human being, as a Jew, as a rabbi, as a cantor, as a clay kodesh, with this kind of text? Instruct the Israelite people to bring you a red cow without blemish, in which there's no defect, on which no yoke has been laid. You shall give it to Elazar the priest. It shall be taken outside the camp, slaughtered in his presence. Elazar the priest shall take some of the blood with his finger, sprinkle it seven times towards the front of the tent of meeting. The cow shall be burned in his sight. Its hide, flesh, and blood shall be burned, its dung included. And the priest shall take cedar wood, hyssop, crimson stuff, and throw them into the fire consuming the cow. And then it goes on to say that all that stuff is combined with water, and then he who touches the corpse of any human being shall be impure for seven days. He shall purify himself with it, this water with all the ashes, on the third day, on the seventh day, and then be pure. If he fails to cure himself on the third and seventh day, he shall not be pure, etc. Um, uh, whoever touches a corpse, the body of a person who has died and does not purify himself, defiles the Lord's tabernacle, that person shall be cut off from Israel, since the water of lustration, that this magic potion, was not dashed on him, he remains impure, and his impurity is still upon him. Okay? So, before we get to any of the commentators, uh, and of course before we get to Rabbi Sachs, what do you do with that, Elias and Dan? So, uh, I'm going to let you speak more deeply, Lord Nelson, about this. In my own case, it's very simple. So, I've been teaching Bar Mitzvah for like 25 years or more. And um, when I get to parts like this, I tell the kids usually, you know, you'll work with me with a Torah portion and a Torah, right? And the chanting of it. And perhaps you'll learn parts of the story, but the deep content of it, you'll deal with the rock. <laughs> so I said to them, worst case scenario, if they ask me questions, I said, honestly, I don't know what it means. I don't know Hebrew enough. I only know the tropes. <laughs> Go and ask the rabbi. Um, but yes, I mean, seriously talking now, it's one of those enigmatic, you know, passages in the Torah that it's so hard to, to you know, 
wrap your head around. Yes, it's like uh, what, why, and what does it mean, and what's the purpose of it? I know that the goal is to purify somebody who has been exposed, but why this? Why Paraduma and all the flemish and all the stuff and all that stuff? I, I don't know. You don't know. Okay, okay. And here's the miracle of this class, people. By the time we get with with Jonathan Sachs's Torah on this. Oh my God, it's just going to hit home. At least for me, it's like, oh my God, my life and my death are in this essay. But we'll get to that later. Mr. Nesson, what before Jonathan Sachs, what do you do with this opaque text? Uh, up until Jonathan Sachs, it was exactly what I told you, Tony. It's like, it's very, it's so opaque, it's so unclear. It's like, and it, it just reminds me of, um, you know, the story of Mitzchak. Mitzchak comes to Rome, right. or, or Mitzchak, you know, we have all these potions and, um, and all that. Cultures, they they have all these kind of bizarre witchcrafts and stuff. Right. Um, but then I always take them a step back a little bit because he, because you know like he realized that um, that most of what we have as modern medicine is actually stuff that comes from the earth. So um, so those those remedies that seem very bizarre to us, um, you know, eat this plant, drink this, etc. Um, they're they're actually. Um, they're actually based on, on reality that the, the, the things that we have, you know, um, uh, everything that we have that we take for medication actually initiates from the earth. So there may be, there may be something to it, but God knows what. You know, actually literally, God knows what. Um, uh, so, again, let, yeah. me, let, me, let me pivot off of that, that God knows what. Before Jonathan Sachs, um, the main explanation for this ritual is why do we do it? Only God knows. So why should we do it? Because God says so, yeah. right? And this is taken by tradition. The main reason, if you read Eitz Chaim already, Chaim Chumash in the Shul, if you read Jewish Publication Society book on, on this text, classic mainstream Jewish explanation of this opaque text for the last 2,000 years until Jonathan Sachs was the reason you do it is there's no reason other than God said. It's a because I said, because God right. said, and therefore you do it. It's a chok. Mm-hmm. And a chok is a kind of ritual that is not intelligible. It's not discernible from human reason. You mm-hmm. only do it because God says. And my question is, as a category of explanation, do either of you find that compelling or not compelling? Hechazan, uh, Elias Rosenberg. Well, we have to also go back. Have you ever seen a red cow? They don't exist. That's right. true. Um, like I was going to say, you know, in, in, if you look in, uh, in biblical Hebrew, um, the, word, uh, the word for, um, uh, for, uh, for red, Adom, comes from Adama. So really, there's no such right. thing as a red heifer. It's, it's really a brown, a brown cup. By the way, now I yeah. understand what yeah. I did to Eliza when she was in this chair. She asked a question, and you were in this chair, <laughs> and instead of answering my question, you posed another question. Elisa, sorry, now I get it. Yeah. But can you answer my question? Yeah. Yeah. What do you do with this explanation that it's just because God said, and that's why you do it? Well, as a good Jew, I can shift the conversation to another topic, which is I always wonder, now seriously talking, about the connection between the Paraduma and Pesach, right, that we are going perhaps going to talk a little bit. Is there any connection? Obviously, it meant a lot with the aspect of blood, all right? And perhaps the red aspect of blood and life, but red being something that is intense. Right. About, you know, how the firstborn of the Egyptians died. That God right. indicates, you know, with okay. blood marked the okay, door. I love your life, but you're still not on my question. All right. My question, Mr. Nesson. Okay, wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. Mr. Ask Nesson, me again the question. I'll ask Dan. Dan. <laughs> 
<laughs> what do you do? You find it compelling that you would do a certain mitzvah, mitzvah X, not because you understand it. Like if I say don't murder, you get why don't murder. If I say do Shabbat, you get why Shabbat. If I say don't steal and cheat or testify falsely, you get that, right? Um, it's discernible. Even if the Torah didn't say it, you would get it. You understand it. But now this is op- this is not that. This is do X where you cannot understand why X. The only reason you do X is in our framework, on our religious system, we say God commands X, and therefore you do it. Does that work for you, Dan? And please answer that question. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't. It, it does not. I, I, need, I need to have... I mean, it, it's, it's hard to be a person of faith and simultaneously say, this makes no sense to me, and I probably won't do it. Right. But, but so I have a completely different take on that. I can answer that question. Okay. Definitely I would do it. You would do it. Say more. Definitely, because, uh, first of all, I feel very much identified with a set of rituals that pass from generation to generation, regardless of their meaning now. It could have had very good meaning in the past. I mean, you and I talk about so many things, and one of the things you mentioned that doesn't make sense for you is the program Lula, and if right. not, you know, walking right. around, shaking it like, a, you know, right. like a superstitious in a way. Right, right, right. But we still do it, right? right? And we don't do it. I don't do it because I'm a clergy. I just do it because I have the conviction that it's something beautiful, that it meant something to our, you know, past generations, that it makes sense to do it now. Yeah. But let's talk more about the elephant in the room that is always there. Kashrut. Right. Is Kashrut something that we can rationally think that makes sense? Perhaps not. Okay, so th- that's a whole separate conversation and, and, and a fair point. I, I want to just, on this issue of Bill, because I said, I want to just say, you know, it does. I'm with Dan. It doesn't work for me in terms of religious motivation. Um, um, what do you do? I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, well, first of all, I don't do the para aduma anyway, so I'm off the hook as a book. But just theoretically, I, I wouldn't do it because God said that just doesn't work for me. But I am mindful of of a related issue, which is when would you do something just because somebody you love says to do it? You know, it was. If Lorena says, do something, do X, and you don't understand why, but she says, do it for me, you would do it. Or Emma says, Dad, do X, and you don't really want to, or you don't understand it, but you love Emma. Emma says, do it for me. So I, I'm always mindful of what I, what I remember about this is, years ago, Micha Goodman was here, and he was giving a lecture. And he says to me, right before he's about to go on, oh, I don't do microphones. This was early on. I, I don't speak on a microphone. And I and I, I started crowding out all my explanations why he please use a microphone. Um, I, I, I tried halachic answers that didn't work. I tried uh, I, I tried uh, people can't hear you. He said, well, I'll, I'll I'll speak louder. I said they still won't be able to hear you. He said I'll speak even louder. I tried everything I could. He said he's just not comfortable. He's not comfortable. So I didn't know what to do. And I knew that if Mika Goodman speaks without a microphone. All I will hear is Kiddush. I couldn't hear him. I couldn't hear him. What did he say? I couldn't hear him. So in walks, Hashem sends an angel. Hashem sends Gary Orr, who is a, persuasion, you know, is a professor of persuasion at Harvard. I said, Gary, I need your help. Micha is about to go on, and he won't use a microphone. And I've tried the following five arguments, and they all are unavailing. He won't go on. Do you have any, any arrows in your quiver bag that I haven't tried yet? And Gary said, yes, one last one, one last one, which is do it for me, do it for me. So I went to Micha, and I said, Micha, 
this is about us and our relationship. Do it for me. Do it for me. And he said, okay, I'll do it for you. Now, um, here's the thing. So you know, it's possible that you could say that the, the, the rationale would be to do God is do it for me. But I will just say one last thing before we move to Jonathan's text. I don't, you have to use it very rarely. Because if you, you can't use do it for me every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You have to use it rarely. And I also find, you know, in relationships between and among adults, do it for me burns a lot of trash. It does, it's not a very tenable long-term solution. So I think we are well served by acknowledging that up until Jonathan Sachs' explanation, this whole red heifer business is just not very compelling. Now comes Jonathan Sachs. So, yes. so many passages that are really beautiful in our liturgy, but specifically two in the High Holies are very special to me and very powerful and deep. In the Pentecostals, obviously, and Humility. And I try to lead by the Humility words that, you know, I have this big responsibility to carry on in the representation of the congregation, bringing all the praise, and who am I? I'm a humble person, who am I? So, in a way, I feel like that. I feel like who am I to question rituals that have been on for centuries in Judaism, done thousands of times in synagogue, for me to question and to say, I don't do it because it doesn't speak to me and doesn't make sense? Well, um, that's one point of view. The other point of view is, who am I? God has made you a little less of an angel. You only go around once. And for religious life to make sense, in my opinion, it has to make sense. Religious life to make sense, it has to make sense. And if, and if the people don't know why they're doing something, they just won't do it long term. And if you're thinking about a sustainable system of religious practice, the people don't get something out of it and they can't articulate why they do it. You can't articulate to your kids why you do it. You can't articulate to other people. I mean, I say the best way in the, 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 best way in the world to start your day is go to meaning every morning. The best way to end your day every day is to go to meaning and do nothing. And I can tell anybody who will listen why it's the best start of the day, why it's the best end of the day. I believe it. I feel it in every fiber of my being. Morning minion, evening minion is just the best way to live out a day. Because I can, I feel it, I can articulate it. If I didn't feel it, would I just do it because God commanded? I, I, to me, anyway. But that's a, that's a legitimate conversation. I want to. I want. I want things to make sense, and I want to be able to articulate. But let me just. I want to just. I want to move on because of time. Um, now comes the, the the great idea of Rabbi Sachs. So he he takes hope, which you know has been interpreted as something that's a black hole that we don't understand. And this is on page six. I won't read all of it, but he says that the, the shoresh, the root of, of hope, is to engrave, to go deeper. And then he says, um, a moral system to be adequate to the human condition must recognize the nature of the human condition. It must speak to our fears. And then he says, the most profound fear most of us have is of death. And then he quotes some um, French thinker, neither the sun nor death can be looked at with a steady eye. And then he says, few have explored death and the tragic shadow it casts over life more profoundly than the author of Kohelet. The fate of man is the fate of cattle. The same fate awaits them both. The death of one is like the death of the other. 
Their spirits are the same, and the preeminence of man over beast is nothing, for it is all shallow breath, all end in the same place, all emerge from dust and go back to dust. And then he says, the knowledge that we will die, that he will die, robs Kohelet of any sense of the meaningfulness of life. We have no idea what will happen after our death to what we have achieved in life. Death makes mockery of virtue. The hero may die young while the coward lives to old age, and bereavement is tragic in a different way. To lose those we love is to have the fabric of our life deformed, perhaps irreparably. Death defiles in the simplest, darkest sense. Mortality opens an abyss between us and God's eternity. So he says that this whole red heifer thing, far from being opaque, deals with our deepest fear, which is dying. And then here's what he says, and this is my language of what he says, which is that the paraduma is an enacted ritual where we take death, um, which is in the form of ashes. So you take a bunch of things that are preeminent in life. You take a perfect red cow. Like a perfect red cow walks around thinking, how lucky am I? I'm perfect. I don't have a blemish. I'm healthy. I'm strong. I am just the luckiest cow. Wrong. Death. Dust. Ashes. I'm a cedar tree. I'm the tallest tree. I'm the strongest tree. I'm a cedar tree. I'm used for the temple. Wrong. Ashes. I'm crimson, I'm red, I'm life, wrong, ashes. I'm hyssop, I'm pure, I'm fragrant, I smell delicious, wrong, ashes. You take all those, all that stuff that used to be alive and strong and resonant and impregnable and unassailable and invincible, I am alive, I'm strong, it's all ashes. Ashes. And then it's put in this flowing water, and then it's a dramatic reenactment, this ashes is put in water and spritzed on people as if to say that the answer to mortality is you're part of a longer view. Yes, this individual cow dies. Yes, this individual tree dies. Yes, this individual person dies. But life is going to go on through values and water cleanses and water flows and there's a flow and a continuity uh, and a regeneration of life. So this is like a dramatic spectacle which in the face of death affirms life. And it's all very engraved in size. It's, It's under the surface. It deals with our deepest fears but in a subterranean way. It's not like, you know, um, it's not like Unakanatoka, which is very explicit. Who by fire, who by water, who by storm, who by stone. Right there, you're like, who's going to live, who's going to die. There, the fear of mortality in Unakanatoka is explicit. It's in black and white. It's in the forest. It's explicit in the text. This is all subterranean, and it's all symbolic. It's stuff that used to be alive that's ground into powder, but that powder is itself put into water, which flows, and it's a dramatic reenactment of life itself. And then I just want to, um, so let's pause there. Um, and then I'll, I'll just read this last thing. Um, it is this fear existential and elemental to which the right of the heifer is addressed. The animal itself is the starkest symbol of pure animal life, untamed, undomesticated. The red, like the scarlet of the wool, is the color of blood, the essence of life. The cedar is the tallest of trees, represents vegetative life. The hyssop symbolizes purity. 
All of these were reduced to ash in the fire, a powerful drama of mortality. The ash itself was then dissolved in water, symbolizing continuity, the flow of life, the potential of rebirth. The body dies, but the spirit flows on. A generation dies, but another is born. Lives may end, but life does not end. Those who live after us continue what we began, and we live on in them. Life is a never-ending stream, and a trace of us is carried onward to the future. What do you guys think of Rabbi Sachs on Para Aduma? It's amazing. It's amazing. It makes sense, obviously, for the first time, you know, that, that we see any explanation. Also, it also to me, he, he says a little later, it, it makes, in a way, you know, the act of this paradumar that he didn't do much anymore, never did, hopefully will never do, um, so many aspects of it, you know, think about purification, dust, um, seven days, are things that we do normally when we loosen. Like Shiva. Yeah. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, right. and we say at funerals, you know, meafar, meafar, uh, I don't know, I remember exactly, meafar yabol, meafar, right. you know, from dust from we dust are. From dust to dust, yeah. Right. And it's, it's fascinating. We can make a connection between that and that. Um, yes, it's, it's a beautiful explanation. I think that, um, yes, he, he talks about, you know, purification, immortality, and, and, and the, the deep meaning of that. Uh, um, I think it's brilliant. Yeah. Um, Mr. Nessie. Yeah, I think the same thing. Um, but I was thinking about like, uh, also Psalm 49. You know, the song that we say, you know, that's really, that's all about death as a presentation of a continuity of life. Um, I'm always torn between the two um, aspects of what he's bringing up, you know, with, with Kohelet. I mean, I think that Kohelet is onto something. It's a certain his existential philosophy. Yeah, yeah. You know, is, is, is onto something in the sense that, you know, um, in a certain way, you can step back and say, life is meaningless and I can just do what I want. Right? Um, but if you want to live a life that's not meaningless, in other words, going through life and having and having the idea that you, you're just here for such a short period of time. And, you know, when, when you're younger, you know, you realize that, that um, you start to think that you're here just for a short period of time, that what you want to do is actually have a life of meaning. And also and very interesting that in the same that relates with this obscure thing about Pesach. What is the Megillah we read in Pesach? Shira Kirin. It's the contrast of Kohelet. Yeah. Right. Love exactly. and hope and beauty. Right. Yeah. So now let's talk about uh, why is this Para Aduma ritual brought to us by our sages shortly before Pesach. Here's my explanation for trying to put this all together. That Pesach is a season where grandparents or grandchildren, parents and children, are around the table. And, and if you do Pesach right, and if you're blessed to have generations dialoguing about what matters, uh, justice and Pharaoh and oppression and social activism and how do we make this world a better place and people along, and you're doing it with great food and great wine and friends and family and together and after two years we're together. This is life as good as it gets. And then there's the Kohelet fear of mortality that starts to creep in. You're 65, you're 70, you're 75, you're 80, you're 85, you're 88, you're 90, you're 92, you're 93, you're 94. You're in those 70s, 80s, 90s. And you start to wonder, 
How many Passovers do I have? How many? I, and this is just like so real. You know, my my father in love is ninety is going on ninety four years old now. Baruch Hashem, and I and I wonder and I worry how many more Pesachs does he have left? Um, how do you, and and how you know your mother in Buenos Aires? How many Pesachs does she have left? How many Pesachs do any of us have left? And I to me, our tradition brings the Torah Adma because we are we, we confront squarely the question of our own mortality in a context where there are parents and children, grandparents and grandchildren, the people we love most, talking about the things that we care about most. And that brings us to Tolstoy, which is, um, he brings, and this is just so Jonathan Sachs, you know, the title of it is Kohelet, Tolstoy, and the Red Heifer. Who brings those three together? Only one man, Jonathan Sachs. Kohelet, Tolstoy, and Red Heifer. But his piece on Tolstoy is Tolstoy is just, has made it. You know, he's written Anna Karenina, he's written War and Peace, and he's that rare thing for an author, an author who is appreciated, adored, and beloved in his life. He didn't, he didn't have to die to get appreciated. Um, and he's rich, he has an estate, he's married, he has kids, and he's in his 50s, he has health. And then, and then Tolstoy starts to deal with this thing that we may deal with around our Seder table, which is, what's the meaning of it all? Like, how can I enjoy this Pesach Seder that's going to be in my life? If I'm, if I'm not going to be here for next Pesach, how am I going to enjoy this Pesach? And Tolstoy has his version of that. This is from Rabbi Sachs' The person in modern times who most deeply experienced and expressed what Kohelet felt was Tolstoy. He told the story in his essay, A Confession. By the time he wrote it in his early 50s, he had already published two of the greatest novels ever written, War and Peace and Anna Karenina. His literary legacy was secure. His greatness was universally recognized. He was married with children. He had a large estate. His health was good. Yet he was overcome with a sense of the meaninglessness of life in the face of the knowledge that we will all die. He quoted Kohelet at length. He contemplated suicide. The question that haunted him was, is there any meaning in my life that will not be annihilated by the inevitability of death which awaits me? Right? That's the darkness. Uh, that's at, at the deep root, right? And then he searched for an answer in science, but all it told him was that, in, in quotes, in the infinity of space and the infinity of time, infinitely small particles mutate with infinite complexity. Science deals in causes and effects, says Robert Sachs, not purpose and meaning. In the end, he concluded that only religious faith rescues life from meaninglessness. Rational knowledge negates the meaning of life. What is needed is something other than rational knowledge. And he concludes, faith is the force of life. If a man lives, then he must believe in God. If he does understand the illusion of the finite, he is bound to believe in the infinite. Without faith, it is impossible to live. In other words, the deepest answer to our mortality is living a life of faith. Comment, Elias. I have a question for you, my yeah. friend, since you are the, the headmaster and, uh, and, the, and the wise. I love this article, yeah. everything about it, until this point. Okay. I don't understand why 
what he means by life of faith. In which way the life ah. of faith changes your perspective of mortality and in any of the things ah. that we achieve in this life. Oh, I'll, 100%. I'll, I'll just be very personal. If all my life is about is Wesley Wesley, that's, that's it. Then my, when I die after my 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, whatever the amount is that I'll be given by God or God puts around by luck because we're all a part of it. Then if all that is is me, then when I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, and there's nothing left. And then one could ask the question, what, what's the point of it all? Uh, my whole life is about me, and I'm going to be dead. Nothing's going to be left. Hence, whatever I accomplish in the next years that I'm allotted, what's the purpose of it all? However, now, if we change it and say, I'm going to live a life of faith, then all of a sudden, my life just got much bigger and much more important. Because my life is about values that existed and traditions that existed well before me, thousands of years before me, are going to exist thousands of years after me. And I'm just, pick your, pick your metaphor, a link in the chain. I'm just the vessel through which all these values pass. I'm going to tag the future. And now, knowing that I die, I can be at peace because the values that I really care about are going to live on. Let's put it in the case of faith here. Let's say you're 93, 94 years old, like your father. Right? You know, and naturally, one could be saying, am I going to be here at 95 for the Pesach service? Am I going to be here for 96? So, but at a certain point, you have to say, you know, it's a countable number. I got a handful of Pesach services. Right? And if all your life is just you, that's very sobering. It's very hard to enjoy the Pesach service you have. But if you are living a life of faith, then you know that the Seder is going to continue with or without you. And your children and your grandchildren, my father-in-law's case, you know, and his great-grandchildren, they're going to be continuing this. So, I, mission accomplished. My purpose in life was not me, just to eat, drink, and work out, and, and live a life for myself until I die. Uh, my purpose was to transmit and to teach, so, and now all those values are going to live on. Now, what's the question? Is he referring to faith in terms of religion faith, or like being <coughs> the voter religious person because you have faith, or any aspect in life that, for example, what is Tolstoy? Never went to church, never went to anything, and he considered he had faith. Why? Because he said, I'm a great writer. I would love for my son or my daughter to continue my path and become writers. And that's my faith. Right. So I think every person has to answer that question for themselves. But for my money, there, faith means some kind of serious religious project, which involves um, stuff beyond me, which involves this broken world, which involves how can I fix this broken world? How can I do my part? What's my contribution to the broken world? Which involves community. Now, all religions do this and do it differently. Which involves God, however you're going to interpret it, and bump up against it and wrestle with it and struggle with it until your dying day, right? That's the faith that I think Tulsa is talking about. And that faith is, is, is the faith that allows you to think, even when you're going, and even if it's your last later, I've tagged the future, and really important, noble values are going to continue on without me. By the way, this is a little meta, 
but Rabbi Sachs wrote this in his last year. He wrote this right before his last Pesach. He's talking about himself. I mean, without mentioning himself, he's dying of cancer, and he knows that he has months to live. He's at his last Seder, and what he's talking about is I'm tagging the future. My life is about not just my fleshly humanity. My life is about ideas and ideals and values, and those are going to live on witness the fact that you're talking about someone who will say that. Mr. Nessel. Yeah, I want to so why is the answer to your question. He, he talks about it right in that paragraph. Um, he says science deals with cause and effect, not, not purpose and meaning. Right? So I think when you, when you talk about a life of faith, he's talking about purpose and meaning, and then um, and, uh, also you know, deciding what that purpose and meaning is. And as the Rabbi just said, that purpose, the purpose is that, that you um, become the vessel through which life continues to flow. The meaning is the perpetuation of those um, of those rituals and those other, uh, which creates the uh, the meaning, which creates the flow. So I think that's what he's trying to say. Now, yeah, exactly. It doesn't really matter what. It's more, I think I think in a certain way, it doesn't really matter if it's an organized religion or not. Just the idea that you have a faith, um, a, f- uh, a faith in, uh, in connection to community uh, and moving uh, and moving. Through, uh, continuing to flow your life through the sense of, you know, of a larger, larger life. And here's what's at stake in this conversation, which is, so he posits that mortality is our deepest fear, most of our deepest fear, like non-existence is our deepest fear. And the question is, can you ever be, and yet it's inevitable. I mean, it's inevitable, right? Um, the question is, can you ever get really deeply good with your own inevitable death. Can you become, nobody wants to die, and certainly nobody wants to die tomorrow, and certainly nobody wants to get a bad diagnosis, et cetera, et cetera. But is it possible through this interpretation of the paradigma that death is inevitable, the ashes are inevitable, that there's the water of respiration, there's the continuity, there's the flow, there's the next generation, there's Mikey and David, and they're going to be doing great things in the future. There's Emma, she's going to be doing great things in the future. That can you somehow get to a place of peace with your own mortality? And I, I, it feels like that's the ultimate end game of this project, which is to be able to squarely confront mortality, including your own, and say, I get it, I'm okay with it, because the stuff I really care about is going to live on people I love most. Can you get there, Gerard? Um, so, it will be, be a little um, not, not fair for me to to think about that because I'm, you know, normally, we've seen it over and over, you know, and you bring it so much, so many times when you do eulogies that people who are really content with their lives, I have kids, I had a wonderful career, I have lovely friends, the most Thing that the most often thing that they say, one more wish is, I have a longer life. I just wish I could have had more time. Right? So in a certain way, even those who are completely full with their lives, they wish for something else. So I'm not so sure we are, as human beings are able to wrap around our heads about the mortality issue, even though we may have everything we want. Mr. Nessel, what about you? Yeah. I would say my... My deepest fear in terms of mortality is that I'm going to leave this world not having perpetuated 
um, just the future as best I can. But, but, and that's, that's really hard. Like every day I say, what, what am I doing that's going to be a role model for somebody else? And if I'm not doing something every day, and I'm not, because, you know, life, if daily life gets in the way of life, then um, I feel that, you know, that, I'm, that there's a certain failure to that. And so that, that sense of mortality is just, it, it can be devastating. And it, it, if you think about it too much, then you're just going to lock up and close up. Mm-hmm. But, um, but trying to get up every day um, after saying no to Eileen and just saying, okay, what, what am I going to do today that's going to be positively impactful to somebody else? If I do that, Daily, then, um, then that's that's just that's that that will help alleviate the sense of, of the fear of, of mortality, but I don't think it'll do it anymore. Yeah. Wes, I have one question before you close. Yes, for you. Yes, please. We mentioned before this idea about you and I disagreeing that you know if there's something that we are supposed to do, but I under I don't understand it. It doesn't speak to me. You and I have different reactions to it, right? And then you bring this fabulous article by Robert Sachs which suddenly brings sense to all these obscure rituals. I'm sure this changes your perspective of the paradigma. If the case presents to you, which is obviously hypothetical, would you do it considering the explanation he provides to you? 100%. 100%. I mean, if if there were a temple, there's a lot of ifs, right? But it now makes sense in a deep way. By the way, to me, thank you for your question, this shows why logic, reason, and persuasion are just so much more powerful than Stuart Tillichai. Stuart Tillichai says is a, is a bad explanation. It's not tenable. It has no legs. It's, you can't build a system on it. But let me show you how this seemingly opaque thing speaks to your deepest fears in a helpful way. That I would sign on to in a heartbeat. I want to just give the last word to Rabbi Sachs, again, noting that he wrote these words while he was dying, and he knew it. He writes, I believe that we can emerge from the shadow of death if we allow ourselves to be healed by the God of life. To do so, though, we need the help of others. A prisoner cannot release himself from prison, says the Talmud. It took a Kohen to sprinkle the waters of cleansing. It takes comforters to lift our grief, but faith Faith from the world of hope, deeper than the rational mind, can help cure our deepest fears. In other words, Judaism really matters, synagogue really matters, the seders really matter, because we're in relationship with one another, and that helps us take whatever time we have left and invest it with ultimate joy and blessing and meaning. And as far as the deepest fear that we don't get to live forever, tag your it. By the way, all of us are in the tag your it business. We're all saying tag your it to the future. And if we can do that, then we can enjoy the moment that we are in right now. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.